Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. This morning as we take a look at 2 Timothy and as we're taking a look at this passage, we're taking a look at the Word of God and it seems a little bit of a kind of a strange thing to think about. We're going to see what the Bible says about itself. And uh, this is very important because this doctrine uh, is really foundational and fundamental to every other doctrine that we have. When you think about all of the things that we believe as a Christian, whether it's what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus Christ, what you believe about the Holy Spirit, what you believe about heaven and hell, what you believe about sin, all of that is based upon this foundational doctrine of the Bible. What you believe as a Christian should be based on what the Bible says. Amen? Right? That's where our teaching comes from. That's where our learning comes from. That's where our belief and our faith comes from. So I want to take a look at a couple, a couple very basic but very important principles regarding the Word of God. The first of which is that God gave His Word. That God gave His Word. In verse number 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All the Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that the Bible, the Scriptures, is inspired? What we mean is that these are not man's ideas, these are not somebody's ideas, these are God's very words. Amen? Right? These are the very words of God. All scripture, all of it is given to us from the Lord. This is the word of God and every word is inspired. So, the words that we hold are the words of God. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you that God gave to us his word? Well, first of all, what it means is that God's word is truth. What it means is that the words that you hold in your hand, when you hold the Bible, that book is the truth. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You ever read a news article or you ever watch the news on a particular event and read a different news article from a different newspaper or watch, you know, the news from two different channels. And you ever read those articles and think, you know, these two articles are very different. It almost feels like they're covering two different events. You ever come across things like that? You know, you read one article from one end of the spectrum, you know, politically, and then you read another article from the other end of the uh, political spectrum, and it feels like they're totally different things. You know, one group is saying one thing, and the other group is saying something totally opposite, and it can make you wonder, what's the truth here? Right? What actually happened? This group says this, or this person says that, But what actually happened? Sometimes it can be hard to determine what really did happen because you've got all different voices, all different words that are coming out. Well, if the Bible is God's word, and it is, then we don't have to worry about what we're reading, whether it is true or not. It is the truth. This is not just somebody's opinion on the matter. This is God's very word, which means that it is true. 
What it means is that you don't have to worry about what God says in his word. You don't have to worry, is it true? Did this really happen? Did it really happen this way? It did because these are the very words of God. So if these words are inspired, then it means that God's word is truth. There's another very important implication of these being the very words of God, which means that this book is alive. It's alive. These words are not normal words. These words look like normal words, but they are not normal words. Do you know what I'm saying? You ever read the Bible and you read something and you get convicted about something? Almost not like I'm reading the words, but the words are reading me. And there's, there's conviction in my heart about, hey, you're reading about sin and, and you're reading about somebody else's sin, but what about your own sin? Where did that come from? It came from the fact that God's word is alive. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 says, for the word of God is quick. That word quick means alive. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is alive and if you will read it, it will speak to your heart. It will divine in your heart what is really going on? Other people may not be able to tell what's really going on in your life, but the Word of God knows because it is alive. Now, how could the Word of God be alive? Well, going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means that God breathed. It means God breathed into the Scriptures. That's how we know that it's alive. Go back to the book of Genesis. Remember Genesis? God made Adam. He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And remember what he did? He breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. In the same way, God breathed into his words and the words became a living book. That's how it is alive. That's why this book is not like any other book in the entire world. Because these are the only words into which God breathed life. That means it'll work in you. The third thing that we should consider when we acknowledge that these are the very words of God, first of all, we need to acknowledge it is truth. If it is the truth, we just need to trust it. It is alive. If you will read it, you, it will get into you, it will affect you, it will change you. The third implication is that God's word is valuable. If these words are the words of God, then this is valuable. It carries great weight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 13 gives us this idea of how we should receive the word of God as it is the word of God. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. What we should do as believers is with the word of God, we ought to receive it. Amen? Our job is not to pick it apart. Our job is not to analyze it and figure out every all of which. It, our job is simply to receive it. Amen? Now, we could go into the deeper studies. There's some, there's some valuable work that is there to be done. But the first principle is we should receive it as it is given to us. 
just like these individuals received it, that you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So we need to receive it, and we need to believe it. When we receive it, and when we trust in it, and we say, that's what God says, therefore I'm going to do what God says, it will work in us. Psalm chapter 138, verse number 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. We emphasize at our church the word of God and the preaching of it. Okay? There's a reason why the preaching time dominates the time period that we have together in the worship service. That's why in our Life Connection class, you'll have opportunities to talk with one, one another, but it's all centered around the Word of God. There's a very good reason for that. It's because God magnified His Word above everything else, even His name. So if God elevated His Word in that manner, we should also elevate the Word in our lives and in our church. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse number 2 says, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So God's word should be valued. If God elevated his word, we too should also elevate the word of God in our personal life, in our church, in our ministry, in our homes, in our relationships. Because God gave his word. So that's great that God gave his word, but I want to take a look at another very important principle that's equally as important as inspiration. God didn't just give his word, God guarded his word. Let's back up a couple verses. Verse number 14. Verse number 14 says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. So Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, you know the scriptures. You know the word of God. And here comes the second principle. The first one is inspiration. God gave his word. The second principle is preservation. God kept his word. God didn't just give his word on earth. He has preserved it so that we could have it with us today. Amen? All right? God's word did not just exist a long time ago. It exists on earth today. And we have it with us today. Amen? You have to believe this if you're going to believe the very words of God that we're reading. Because he says... I have preserved my word. So there's a promise of preservation. We read some of the verses there, but looking at some other passages, Psalms chapter 100, verse number five. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth, remember, the, thy word is truth, his truth endureth to all generations. So God has made it clear every single generation will have on earth be accessible the word of God. All right? Every single generation. All right? There's no gaps. Matthew chapter 24, verse number 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, as he's being tempted by the devil. 
responds. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Here is Jesus saying, You and I need the word of God every single day. Uh, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. God gave it and he preserved it because he knew that we would need it. Okay, so there's a promise of preservation. Now we're going to talk about the process of preservation. Not only did God promise to preserve his word, he has given a very specific process for that preservation. So in particular, so the Old Testament was given to whom? It was given to the? It was given to the nation of Israel. Amen. Are we in agreement on that? It was, all right? That's pretty clear. The Old Testament was given to the Jews. That would, it was given to them, that process of preservation. And when you take a look at those that write about, you know, the preservation of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, from what I can read, there's not a lot of debate about the Old Testament. There was very specific processes for the preservation of the scriptures. You had priests that it was their job to make sure that the scriptures were preserved. You would have families. They would write it in their, in their homes and things like that. The kings were to copy the scriptures. There's a process. And then later there were some scribes. They were called the, uh, you know, they produced this, uh, this text that we use, the Masoretic text. They were the Masoretes. And so they would, they, it was their job to preserve the scriptures. And so there's fairly good confidence there. The New Testament is where you get into a lot of debate. Maybe you've read about it. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you go to a church or you know some people who are, uh, they go to a different church and they use different versions of the Bible and they talk about some different things. Well, we're going to talk about this process of preservation. This is very important that we understand not just that God promised to preserve it and not just that God did it, but we understand how God did it because he gives us Pretty clear principle. So we took a look at this verse earlier. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the word of God is truth. We took a look at that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15 says this in, in regard to the truth. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. What is the truth? It is the word of God. Amen? You following me? All right. Thy word is truth. God says the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Where are you going to find the truth? Where are you going to find God's word? Well, naturally, you would find it in the church. Amen? Amen. That just naturally makes sense. God said it very plainly and clearly. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God's word is truth. The Bible says that the truth, the word of God, will be found in the church. Matthew 16 says that God will preserve his church. He has promised to propagate the church. John chapter 17, verse number 8 says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So here is Jesus. He is praying. He's praying to God the Father, God the Son, praying to God the Father. And he says, I have given unto them, 
He's given unto the church, those believers that were there, the words which thou gavest me. So God has given the words to his church. The church is where the word of God would be found, and God has promised to preserve his church. You following me? Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God promised to preserve his church? And he has promised to preserve his word by preserving the church, or at least that's the process. And that's very important because when you think about what are we as a church supposed to do today, right? When you think about what has God commissioned us as believers to do today, what are we supposed to do as a church? Well, if we want to know what we're supposed to do as a church, we go to the Bible. Amen? What are we supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, God says, here is your instruction manual as a Christian and as a church. It's the Bible. Matthew chapter 28 is a great commission. It's a great summary if you want to say, well, what is the church supposed to do? It's a great way to just simplify everything down. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So that's part of missions, right? When we support missionaries around the world, why do we do that? Because partly of this verse, teach all nations. I can't go to all 200 some odd nations that are out there, but I can support missionaries that will go, preach the gospel there, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So here's where we get into what is really practical regarding preservation. If we don't believe that God preserved his word, how in the world are we supposed to teach them all things whatsoever Jesus commanded us if we don't have it? Right? Does that make sense? How could God command us to do something if we don't have the something that we're supposed to be doing? All right? That doesn't make sense. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We are to receive the word of God, as you all have, as many of you have, and give it to somebody else so that they can give it to somebody else. Right? There's this process of transferring, this process of preservation, if you want to think of it that way. Now, if you think back on the individuals within the churches, and this is recorded, you know, when you look at the Bible itself, you can see this. When you look at other people as they wrote about the church, you can kind of see this as well. A lot of people in the early church were not well-educated. And by not well-educated, we mean many of them couldn't even read. All right? This is thousands of years ago. A lot of people couldn't even, I mean, it's a little hard for us to imagine today. Like, they couldn't read. Grown adults couldn't read anything. Many of them could not. Now, you might think, that sounds like a very foolish way to preserve written word, right? You're going to entrust this organization, which is full of people that can't read, to preserve written word. God, couldn't you have picked something more logical? He could have. He could have. But he didn't. He didn't. Now, there's one very important principle regarding preservation that I think is important for us to realize and to always keep in mind when we look at this aspect of preservation. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Some people will say it doesn't make sense that the Bible could be preserved by the church because look at who was in the church. Now, we believe that God can do all things, amen? amen? Do you believe that God could preserve his word, his written word through people? Not everybody. Many of them could read, of course. We know people, they were writing, you know, John, Peter, and, 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 and Paul, of course, very highly educated Paul was. Do you believe that God could preserve his word even through an organization that maybe would not be quote-unquote ideal, humanly speaking? Of course he could. Amen? Because God is God. Amen? God can do anything. God can preserve his word. That no flesh should glory in his presence. God could have waited until the printing press came out to give his word. He could have said, hey, Peter, let me give you this great idea because I want to preserve my word, the printing press, all right? This is how you make it. This is how you do it. And then preserve the word that way. He could have. But he gave the word about 1,500 years, 1,500 years before the printing press came out. Could God have waited? Of course he could have, but he didn't. So there's an important understanding of the principle of preservation, which is there's an aspect of faith. Amen? Amen. There's an aspect of faith. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. All right. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God created the entire universe in six days? Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you know it? Can you prove it? Can you prove it? Now, I know there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And when I was growing up, we had somebody come in, he was in apologetics, and he would come and, and talk about all these scientific discoveries that show evidence for, hey, seems like God's word is true. What those that are saying about evolution and all of this process of, you know, billions of years doesn't make sense. If you put this and this together, and as the science comes out, you'll see a lot of people are like, well, you know, it doesn't quite make sense. So one of the new theories now is the multiverse, that our universe is not just the only universe in existence. There's an infinite number of universes, and our universe just happens to be the one that works. You know, that's their idea. Can you prove that there is more universe than the one that we live in? They can't prove anything, but that's their idea. They talk about all of these things. Well, there's circumstantial evidence for creation that you look at and you say, well, I mean, I wasn't there on the days of creation. We can't scientifically prove it because there's no, you know, we weren't there. We weren't observing it. But when you see all of the evidence that sits with us today, that's what seems to make sense. The same is true of the word of God. I wasn't there every single step of the preservation process, and neither were you. But when you take a look at the evidence, it is there that God preserved his word. So, now we're going to get practical, all right? The practicality of preservation. We know that God promised to preserve it, and now we've seen the process of it. Now, how do we make this practical, all right? 
uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because each of the Life Connection classes recently, uh, and by recently I mean the last couple of months, has covered the King James Bible or the Bible or, you know, inspiration and preservation. And so I thought, hey, we're coming up on 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a great opportunity for us to talk about something that some of you may have wondered but never asked and gotten an answer. As you've noticed, I'm sure, we read out of the King James Version of the Bible. Right. I'm sure you picked up on that. <laughs> right. There's a reason for that. Right. We use the King James Bible here. That's the version I read. That's the version I study. That's the version I preach. That's the version on the invitation that you all got when you walked in. That's the version that's on there. There's a reason for that. People wonder why. Now, our goal here at Bible Baptist Church is not to say, well, you know, don't, don't listen to everybody else, just listen to me, all right? I'm going to give you the reasons why, and you study it out for yourself, okay? Is that fair? That's fair, right? And that's what we as believers should do. We shouldn't just be like, well, pastor said it, and that's why I believe it. We should be like, well, the Bible says it, and I see some other evidence there, and that's why I believe it, all right? Now, I'm going to give you a couple of things and a couple of reasons because I think it's important that we uh, as believers study, that we are able to discern for ourselves. Because if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And having the Holy Spirit within you, you have a teacher that is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All right? Or if you're considering this last day, 25 hours in a day. Anyway. The Holy Spirit you have for a teacher. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 12 says this, For when the time, for when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or a baby. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Our goal at Bible Baptist Church is not to spoon-feed you everything. It is so that you would be able to dig into the Word of God and to be nourished by it yourself. All right? Babies need everything kind of simplified for them, right? They can't eat full breadth of food that is available. They can only take the simplest form. As they grow, they are able to consume you know, deeper kinds and, and, and better kinds of food, the more breadth. And that's the idea for us as Christians. When you first get saved, maybe you've got to have things very simply handed to you, all right? This is the Word of God, and these are some basic principles. As you grow and mature, you'll be able to read and be like, whoa, this is a very confusing passage. Let me study this for a little bit, and let me read some other verses and, and, and use some helps and studies and things like that. It's important that we approach the Word of God and this doctrine with the idea of, hey, I can be a mature Christian and find this out for myself and come to my own conclusion that, yes, this is what the Word of God says. So, the King James Version. Why do we use the King James Version? The first reason, and really the primary reason, is the text. 
This goes back to preservation. This goes back to preservation. So the source from which your Bible version comes from is important. And you need to know that not all of the Bibles come from the same text. Some of you may not be aware of that. There are two groups of texts, and I'm simplifying this greatly, but, uh, but basically there are two groups of texts. The first group is the received text. Goes by different names, but that's kind of been the name that's been used for a long time. The received text. There's another text that came out uh, roughly maybe 150 years ago that, was, that, that kind of became at least well-known then is called the critical text. Okay, so these are two groups of text. Most of them overlap, okay? Most of them have the same words through most of the verses. But there are some differences. There are some differences. There's two basic groups. One is the received, and one is the critical. Now, there's some major differences between the two, and I'm going to describe to you these differences and let you at least think about this, all right? One group of text has text that at least when we date them from when, when, when they were written, you know, when, basically when they were copied, is a newer group of text, meaning they're more recent. There's a group of text where the texts are a little bit older, all right? The received text, for the most part, has texts that are a little bit newer, more recent. The critical text has text that is a little bit older. One group of text has a lot of manuscript evidence. The other one has less. One has more, one has less. The received text has more, the critical text has less. The critical text is more localized. A lot of those texts are from the area of Alexandria in Egypt, all right? And that would make sense why a lot of these texts would be older, because if you think, all right, we know that the Bible, you know, many of them, you know, much of it was written, you know, there in Jerusalem and Judea and, and other places as well, obviously, once Paul started his missionary journeys. Uh, but he went kind of on the north side of the Mediterranean Sea, right? Turkey, Greece, you know, eventually to Rome, that area. On the Egyptian side, as you can tell, the climate there is a little bit different, right? the climate would, uh, you know, kind of lend itself towards a longer preservation life. So the critical text, for the most part, is kind of more localized in that area. The received text is more broadly kind of spread out. You see evidence of this in greater areas and in areas that are closer to where uh, the text was actually written. When you find out where Paul and these others were writing these texts, it was from Jerusalem, and then in you know, modern-day Turkey and Greece and some of these areas, and in Rome, you have these letters that are kind of written in that area. You'll see that the received text, much of it came from that area. So one text is closer in time, the critical text. The received text is closer in location. Okay, So there's a number of differences between the two. One text was used continually by the churches. The other was not. One text was used continually by the churches, the received text. The other text was not. It was not used by the churches and then kind of got produced in the 1800s. Now, why does that matter? Why that matters is because of 
preservation. Preservation is the principle that guides us through this process. So preservation, according to the Bible, says that God's word will be preserved to all generations. Amen? Amen. That's what the Bible says. It is preserved through all generations. So if you believe that God preserved his word through every generation, you would use the text that was used by the churches in every generation. That would make more sense, right? If you believe that the word of God needs to be restored, that it was missing, that the churches lacked something, but that we need to fix it so that we could really have the word of God, then you might use the critical text, okay? One is based on, we believe God's word is preserved, that's why we're using this text, so that's one of the major reasons, all right? One text was not used by the churches and was used much later, or in our viewpoint, more recently. This is important. That's important. So that is really the foundational point of, all right, why do we use the King James Version? It begins with the text. Now, why does this matter? We're going to dig into this a little bit more. Because inerrancy is also in play here. All right? Inerrancy means, are there errors in the Bible? You ever have a non-Christian friend challenge you? Hey, isn't the Bible full of mistakes? Right? And they say, and you ask them, where? And, you know, usually they say, I don't know. I heard somewhere that there are a lot of mistakes. Okay? I've had that. But sometimes I'll have somebody say, I remember I went door knocking one time, and this guy, he was a Muslim man, he came out and he pulled out this book that I guess was published somewhere, and he said, you know, I don't remember what it said, 101 mistakes in the Bible or something like that. And, you know, it was, it was this book that people would give out to those to say, ah, see, your Bible is full of mistakes. And they would look at all of these things. And I've looked at a lot of those, and not every single one, but a lot of them are like, well, that's pretty easy to explain. Come on, like, let's just look at this or that. But between these two texts, I want you to take a look at some of these verses that you should be aware of. Because, and I, I, I taught Brother Dave's class uh, on the King James uh, Bible recently. It's my job to study the Bible. Okay? That's a big part of my job. My job is to read the Bible, study the Bible, know the Bible. I don't know everything in the Bible, but that's part of my job. When I read some of these other versions and I'm just reading random verses, I can't tell you, is this verse missing a word or did they add words? I don't remember. I, have you seen this book? Do you expect me to know every single word in every single book and every single chapter? I don't remember. So I'm putting a lot of trust in the translation that is put in front of me. There's a lot of trust that I'm putting because am I really going to go back and look at the Greek and look at the Hebrew and compare every single time I read this? I'm not. I'm just opening it up and I'm reading it and I'm studying it. Sometimes I'll dig a little bit deeper, but a lot of times I just read it. So a couple of these verses were brought to my attention by uh, a brother, Mike Lester, he was a Bible teacher at West Coast Baptist College where I went to Bible college, and these verses were brought to my attention by him. And so I want you to at least consider these verses and think about them. John chapter 7, verse number 10. I'm going to read this. This is in the King James. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Okay? 
Now, I'm not going to read you some of the other versions because they basically say the same thing. As I mentioned, the received text, critical text, the majority is the same. But we're taking a look at basic Bible principles like inspiration, preservation, inerrancy, all of these things, okay? Basically, all the versions say something like this, that after everybody went up, Jesus went to the feast secretly. This is verse number 10. Back up a couple of verses, verse number 8. I think you have two versions there, all right? So you have the King James, and I'm just picking the ESV for, for sake of picking one. ESV is one of the most popular ones today. In the King James, it says, I go not up yet unto the feast. What he's saying is, I'm not going yet. You guys go first. I will go later because my time is not yet come. That's the rest of the verse. The ESV says, I am not going up to this feast. Two verses later, it says that he went to the feast, not openly, but secretly. So you got to think about this. Okay, hold on a second. One version says that Jesus said, I'm not going yet. And then two verses later, he went. That's okay, right? Because he said, I'm not going with you right now. I'm not going yet. But when he did go later, you would say, okay, that, that's fair. He said he's not going yet, but he went. In, in the critical text, it says, I'm not going. And then he goes. Okay, this is Jesus we're talking about, right? Did Jesus lie or did he not lie? You got to think about that. First Chronicles chapter 3, verse number 10. We're, we're going through the genealogy. I know genealogies aren't exciting, right? I know nobody gets pumped up for the genealogies. Verse 10. And Solomon's son was Rehoboam. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you know, yeah, Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Rehoboam had Abiah, his son. Asa, his son. Jehoshaphat, his son. Just the genealogies, right? Okay, fine. Matthew, chapter 1, verse number 7. And Solomon begat Rehoboam, or Rehoboam. Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. The ESV. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of... Asaph, which if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you'll see the word Asaph in there. Was Abiah's son Asa or Asaph? Let's go a couple verses down later. First Chronicles chapter 3, verse number 13. Ahaz his son, Hezekiah his son, Manasseh his son, Amon his son, and Josiah his son. Okay, again, I know, not exactly the most exciting verses, but this is the word of God. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 10. We're going through the genealogies again. And Ezekiah begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah. The ESV. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. Now, if you're familiar with your table of contents in your Bible, you'll know that Amos is in there. <laughs> Amos was a prophet. Amos wasn't the king. So it makes you think a little bit. Now, Here's something that I really want you to think about when you take a look at some of the versions, okay? You can look it up later if you want to. Uh, out of the top, you know, most popular Bibles, you'll see the NIV, you'll see the King James Version, you'll see the New King James Version, you'll see the ESV, you'll see the New Living Translation, you'll see some of these other versions, okay? Now, the, the NIV, the New Living, the uh, ESV, the CSB, you know, most of the modern translations, 
all come from the critical text, right? ESV being kind of the example that I picked, okay? Now, here's the thing that I want you to think about, which is the, the ESV says Amos instead of Amen, right? And it said Asaph instead of Asa. The NIV from the same text doesn't say Asaph, it says Asa. And it doesn't say Amos, it says Amen. Now, I want you to ask yourself, okay, these translators are supposed to translate the text that they have, right? But when they translated that word, they said, we're not using this text, we're using the other one. Why would they do that? I don't know why they did that. Because the ESV didn't do that, but the NIV did. Now, remember, this is about trust. Which version do I trust? When I saw that, I thought, hold on a second here. What's going on? Why are two translations from the same text producing different names? Right? That made me wonder, what's going on there? I don't know what's going on there. But if you want to study out for yourself, you can study it out for yourself. The text is the primary reason why we use the King James Version. Because of the principle of preservation that God preserved his word through every generation, and that's the text that we have our translation from, the King James being the best translation of it. All right? The second is theology. Meaning, if the theology of the translators is off, you could understand, or different from what we believe, you could understand how that would introduce a bias into the translation process. That's natural because we're all human. Amen? Right? We're just human beings. And I'm not being critical of the translators. I'm just saying, as human beings, we have a bias. So if I have a bias against something, that's naturally going to come out in my work. It's just going to come out. Right? That's just, that's just how it is. So we're putting a lot of trust into these translators. So there is this principle, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we either believe that the Bible was preserved or it must be restored. So that's the, the principle that's at play. So how does that apply? Okay, let me, let me bring it practical again. I've gotten this question before. We use the King James Version. Why don't you use the new King James Version? Doesn't that make sense? That should make sense, right? We believe in the King James but I'll be honest, a lot of the words are a little bit older, right? Some of the words, we don't necessarily use it exactly that way and can be a little bit confusing. I think if you read the Bible and study it out, most of those will be resolved by themselves. But I, I understand this idea of we don't usually read text that sounds like that. And that's not reason enough for us not to use it. But, you know, I could see why some people would say, well, I'd like to use the New King James Version. It sounds a little bit more natural. It comes from the right text, doesn't it? All right. Supposedly, they, they, they do. Here's the reason why I am suspicious of the New King James Version. Here's why I'm suspicious. Okay, I don't have a New King James Version, but the ones that I've seen at the bottom of the pages are footnotes, at least in the ones that I've seen. In the footnotes, it'll say things like N-A, you know, and then give a different word, or N-A, this verse isn't here. The N-A is the Nestle Allen. It's a group of texts. It's basically 
basically synonymous with the critical text. They're not exactly identical, but they're basically part of the same family. The New King James Version says, all right, here's the verse. I'm translating the verse, but I'm telling you it should really be this over there, okay? Now, let's say you're going to the shoe store. Let's say you walk into the Adidas store and you're looking for some shoes. You walk up, the salesman talks to you and says, what can I do for you? I'm looking for shoes. Great, we got lots of shoes. Come right this way. Takes you to the shoe section. You're looking for some shoes. And he says, what kind of shoes are you looking for? I'm looking for some running shoes. Great, here's some running shoes. All right, why don't you pick one? All right, says, I like this one. This one looks good. Can you give me a size, whatever, size 10? Give me a size 10. All right, great. Yeah, this one's, the, yeah, that's a good shoe, but let me really tell you something. I'm not supposed to tell you this, but the Nike shoe is really better. Okay, don't tell anybody I said that, but the Nike version's really better. Oh, okay, all right, that's a little strange. Why are you working the Adidas store? All right, okay, I'm not getting that one. All right, uh, what about this one? That one looks pretty good, all right? It's pretty expensive, must be a really good shoe. Yeah, 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 that's a great shoe, that's a great shoe. But let me tell you what, I went over to the Nike store the other day, and the Nike store shoe, man, I tried on that one, it's even better, and it's slightly cheaper. I don't tell anyone I said this, but the Nike shoe is really better, okay? Now, if you walked into the Adidas store and the Adidas store guy kept telling you the other store is better, first of all, you'd be wondering, why are you working at the Adidas store? Have you gotten caught for this before? <laughs> all right, and what am I doing here in the Adidas store, right? You'd be wondering, what am I doing here? I should be over there. Now. That's, in my mind, what the New King James Version does. It says, great, you want the Bible? Here it is. But really, what you should be doing is picking that one over there. All right? It makes me wonder. All right, it makes me think. All right? And that's the idea. I want you to think about these things. All right? That's why I'm thinking, what are they doing here? <laughs> what are they doing here? The third is technique. All right? The third reason why we use the King James Version is the technique. The primary reason is the text. The theology also matters, and the technique. There's two basic groups of techniques. The first is dynamic, the other is formal, all right? You may not be familiar with the terms, but if you've looked at different versions of the Bible, you'll know that they vary wildly by how the same verse can sound, all right? So a dynamic equivalency, that's the formal term for it, is basically, all right, I'm gonna read the verse, I'm just gonna tell you kind of what it means. All right? It's basically a translation of ideas and thoughts and things like that. Formal equivalency is more along the lines of, all right, here are the words. I'm just going to translate it word for word as best as I can, and you decide for yourself what it means. All right? There's two basic groups, and it's really a spectrum. All right? The King James Version doesn't always do it exactly word for word because sometimes you'll have like idioms. Or if you have an idiom, you'll be like, okay, I know what the words mean, but I have no idea what this verse is saying, right? So every version does some level of that. But the King James uh, leans more on the side of formal equivalency, all right? So here's, here's, here's why some of these sorts of things matter, all right? We're going to go to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 13, all right? Do you have this verse up here? You don't have the verse, okay. Turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter six, verse number 13. All right, I'm sorry, I forgot to put this verse in. Matthew chapter six, verse number 13 says this. All right, and lead us, some of you may know this by memory, 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right? That's a very well-known verse. Some of you may have it memorized, right? This is part of the Lord's Prayer. That's verse number 13. That's from the King James Version. If you have a different version, look at the version that you have, all right? The ESV says this, all right? If you have your King James, you can look at it. If you have a different version, just look at whatever version you have. The ESV says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pretty similar, right? At least the beginning half. We'll talk about the second half in just a moment. The NIV and the, the New Living Translation, these are some of the more popular versions, they introduce a more dynamic equivalency, meaning I'm not just going to translate what the word is, I'm going to translate and tell you what it means. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, who is the evil one? All right, in your mind, if I were to ask you who is the evil one, you would probably say, all right, you would probably say Satan, right? The King James and the ESV are more formal. I'm not going to interpret it for you, or at least best as I can. I'm just going to tell you what the word is. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The NIV says deliver us from the evil one. Those are two different things, right? If I'm asking God to deliver me from evil, that could mean a lot of different things, right? Because I know there's evil in the world. I know that there is evil in my heart. I know that there is evil in Satan. I know there's a lot of places I need to be delivered from. I need protection. I need safety from. But if Jesus said in his Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one, oh, I only need to worry about Satan. Those are two different things. Those mean two different things. Now, once again, if you're not familiar with your Bible, or even if you are, you might read a passage like that and not realize that that's what the translators did. Because I'm not going through verse by verse and comparing every single thing. I'm just saying, well, you know what? Some wonderful men put a lot of hard work into this so that I don't have to do the work. Great. But that means I'm putting a lot of trust into those that translated the work. All right? It's about trust. And it's about which version do you trust. It's about which version do you trust. So people wonder, why do we preach from the King James and I only reference the King James, I only use the King James, why, do I, why does our church have that position? These are the reasons why, okay? Now, you can look at the other versions for yourself and take a look and see. There are other verses, if you want to ask me about them, I can show you some other verses and say, look, these, these are just some questions. I want you to take a look and think about it. And if you have some other questions for me about the King James Version, great. I'll take a look at it. Maybe I'm not familiar with the verse. I'll take a look at it myself, and we can talk about these sorts of things. But the point is, which version do you trust? So that's where all of this gets pulled together, where, okay, what does inspiration have to do with me? And what does preservation have to do with me? It has to do with which version are you putting your trust in? So that's where this all comes down to. Now, thirdly and quickly, I don't have a lot of time. Thirdly, there's another principle that's very important beyond inspiration and preservation. The third one is that God grows through his word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable because having the right Bible in your bookshelf doesn't matter if you don't use it. Amen? 
having the right version, having the best version in, of the Bible in your bookshelf doesn't matter if you don't use it. In my living room, on one wall is a couch. On the other side is a TV, and there's some bookshelves. That's our living room. Of course, there's a door to walk in. Above our couch hang three things. In the middle, above our couch, is a picture from the day that my wife and I got married. It's this big picture, and uh, Sean, is Sean here? Sean's not here. Sean took those pictures for us, and uh, never, I never knew you or, you know, Sean, but he came from California here to New Jersey, took our pictures, great pictures, wonderful pictures. If you need a photographer, he's not here, but over, you know, talk to his wife over here. Uh, great picture, hanging over our couch. Uh, great, wonderful. On either side of that picture hangs two guitars. One is mine, one is my wife, okay? I've had my guitar for at least 10 years, I would say. My wife has had hers for, I don't know, at least as long as we've been married, maybe longer. She's laughing over there because <laughs> she knows where I'm going with this. All right, seven or eight years, okay? Now, if you ask me to pull down that guitar and play some beautiful music for you, you will be greatly disappointed, <laughs> okay? I've had that guitar for 10 years, and I can play maybe five chords, okay? That's not a great rate of learning. That's like one chord every two years on average, okay? Not doing too good, okay? I don't know about my wife. She's never played it for me. <laughs> she might be better. She might be worse. I don't know, but she hasn't played it for me, okay? Now, is there anything wrong with the guitar? No. Well, it's out of tune because we don't use it. But I could tune it, and it would sound perfectly like a guitar, like any other guitar. It's a great guitar. I paid a lot of money for it. Actually, you know, somebody bought it for me for Christmas. Somebody paid a lot of money for that. It's a great guitar, wonderful guitar, perfectly usable guitar. But I can't make any music because I've never used it. We can have the right doctrine, but if you don't use it, it doesn't matter. Can I make that clear? You can have the right version and have the right beliefs, but if you don't use it, it doesn't matter. I could have the most expensive guitar in the world hanging on my wall and it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't make a difference. You know why? I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to use it. I've never really used it. Every once in a while, I'll pull it down and practice the five chords that I know and then I put it back. We can have the right version in our church, but if we don't use it, it doesn't matter. We've got to use it. That means you've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to learn from it. And you've got to apply it. We've got to have it. And we've got to hold it. Because having a refrigerator full of food doesn't help you if you don't eat it. If you don't eat that food, right? Having a sword and a shield or having a firearm for defense doesn't matter if you don't know how to use it. Having the right translation only matters if you use it. See, if you never read your Bible, it doesn't matter what translation's on your shelf. You could have the worst translation in the world and it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't make a difference. You know why? You weren't using it. That's important. Now, uh, just real practically, in closing, if you want something, this is where technology comes into play, can be very helpful, all right? Some people ask me, you know, how, how do I study or how do I do this here? 
there's an app that you can use and, and something that I highly recommend to download. I usually don't do this, right? But here's what I recommend for people. If you're saying, if you're comfortable using technology, some of you just want a physical book, that's great, that's fine. You can pull out the physical Bible and the physical Strong's Concordance if you want to. But here's what I recommend. What I recommend, this is the, the most user-friendly, cost-affordable option that I found. This is the option that I think works best for most people, which is download the Olive Tree app on your tablet or your phone. In the Olive Tree app, you can uh, buy a Bible version. It's the King James Version, but built in is the Strong's Concordance. Okay, and you'll, what that means is that, let's say you're reading the Bible and you say, okay, here's a word and I don't know what that means. You can click on the word and it'll pop up a, the entry for that word in the concordance. And what that does is it'll give you, number one, the definition of the word. It's like a little mini dictionary. It'll give you every instance that that word was used in the Bible. So if you take a look at the word sanctification, you'd be like, what is sanctification? You could click on it and say, ah, sanctification means set apart. Okay, great. I know what that means now. Then you can take a look at every other time in the Bible, that Greek word or Hebrew word or wherever it is that you're looking, where that's found in the entire Bible. And you can see, ah, in different places, it's actually translated different words. Now, if you're familiar with more than one language, you'll know that languages don't always overlap perfectly, right? You'll know that this word in English doesn't perfectly translate to this word in Korean or Tagalog or whatever. Sometimes, depending on the use case, it's more like this word. But in this situation, sometimes it's more like that word. And languages can be tricky like that. So that's why translation work is very difficult. But it'll tell you every single place that it's used. And then you can take a look at all of the references. Now, don't look up the word the, okay? You'll find like 100 million you know, instances of the word the in the Bible. Don't look up words like that, okay? Just words that you're like, I don't know what sanctification is. I don't know what this word is, you know? Uh, you can look up Jesus Christ if you want to, but Jesus is always going to be Jesus, and it's you know, going to be the same way every other place, basically, with a few exceptions. But okay, that's practically what I recommend for people, okay? So you can have the right word, uh, version of the Bible, but if you don't use it, it doesn't matter. So let's use it, all right? If you want to use technology, great. I'm not anti-technology. I know there's a lot of dangers with technology. The internet, social media, we don't need to get into that. But this is a great way for you to say, you know what, here's something very accessible. When I'm you know, waiting to pick up my child from school, I can open up my app and read the Bible and learn from it. Well, I'm, I got five minutes, I got 10 minutes, I can learn. Or when you're at home and you're doing your devotions and you wanna dig in a little bit deeper, I know what this verse here, I, I think I know what it says, but what is it really saying? You might be able to dig in a little bit. And uh, that I think could be helpful for you. So we are to use it if we are going to benefit from it. So once again, just to summarize, number one, we believe God gave his word, amen? I think everybody here believes, no matter what Bible version that you use, I think everybody here says, yeah, we believe God gave us his word. The second one is, did God guard his word? Did he preserve it through every generation? And if you believe that he did, it's really going to narrow your choices for which version do I trust? Which one do I trust? And which one will I use because I've got to use it? So let me ask you to think about those things. After the service, if you've got questions, 
I'm not saying I can answer all your questions, but I'd love to try to answer them for you.